This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. We are excited to announce that there is a way for people who do not have smartphones or who prefer to use their computers to listen to the Return to Order Moment. All you need to do is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org. When you get there, you will see the Return to Order logo at the top of the page. Immediately under that is a dark yellow bar with eight buttons. The second from the right is Podcast. Simply click on that word and you will go directly to our podcast page. The newest episode will be the first on the list. Click the little arrowhead under the title, sit back and listen. We publish a new podcast every week at midnight when Tuesday becomes Wednesday. So, if you go to the website every week, it is easy to hear our latest episode. So now we thank you for listening to our current episode. The American family must be restored before its society can be revived. The late Andrew Breitbart once said, Politics is downstream from culture. In other words, fixing the culture will fix the politics. Today's episode is going to focus on the building block of culture, the family. The place of the family must be restored, or else society is doomed. This truth is made obvious by looking at the lives of the violent young criminals in America's cities. Mr. John Horvat sees one common connection among these young men. He describes it in his essay, Bring Back the Father, and the Shooting Will Stop. All across the country, thousands of confused young men are a potential danger to their communities. Everyone knows they are there, and in some cases, who they might be. They fit a consistent profile that makes them easy to point out. They are self-centered, frustrating men with mental health issues, often from white middle-class backgrounds. They come from broken families and possess limited social skills and self-discipline. These psychopathic young men become the mass shooters that are terrorizing America. Everyone is like a ticking time bomb waiting to go off. America now faces the problem of dealing with these explosive young men. The matter calls for urgent action as the number of shooters and shootings grows. There are two main solutions to this problem, only one of which is effective. The first one consists of bringing the full power of the government to bear upon these unfortunate individuals and thus eliminating every possibility of a shooting event before it happens. Everyone must get involved to save these poor young men from themselves before it is too late. This solution calls for employing people to monitor these individuals' actions, posts, and tweets for signs of instability and hostility. School staff must be on board to notice antisocial behavior in the classroom. The police must also be ready to move at the slightest sign of trouble. Officials must compile lists, identifying potential offenders that could become dangerous. Another essential component of this strategy is censoring the Internet and eliminating sites that promote hatred and strange ideologies that might prove attractive to these young males. Outreach programs would seek to educate them about the evil of these sites. Sociologists might study the systemic causes of their antisocial and violent behavior and propose government programs to address them. 
Of course, these young men must be disarmed, lest they put their bizarre plans into action. This involves the complicated intervention of judges and police who must make preventative red flag decisions. In addition to the force of law, the government must also make the services of counselors and mental health professionals available. These helpers should be equipped with the latest methods and drugs to calm down angry individuals who have lost self-control over their rage. The counselors must be understanding and helpful. Public prosecutors should be lenient when they commit minor crimes, lest punishment contribute to the wrath that dominates their lives. Nothing should be denied the angry young men. If necessary, they should have access to public assistance, health care, and entitlements to help them survive in society. All these tasks need to be done very carefully so as not to infringe upon their personal rights. They must always be free to express themselves as each sees fit. Above all, blame for their actions must always be placed upon society and social structures and never upon the offending young men. Thus, this first plan is extremely comprehensive. It involves every aspect of the prospective shooter's life. It calls for an army of public servants who monitor these angry young men for signs of antisocial and violent behavior. Others must be ready to react quickly to signals that might indicate evil intentions. Such a plan costs a mountain of money for each individual. In addition, each new shooting provokes do-something gestures that add more time and money to the equation. Alas, each lapse on the part of any person involved in this process might appear in the next day's headlines. Every failure leads to endless finger-pointing of how society failed. Unfortunately, this top-heavy solution is the one presently in effect. As society decays, the solution decreases in effectiveness. Since it is not illegal to be troubled, most of these rogue young men are free to engage in video games, drugs, and rage, all part of the shooter profile, without consequences. Thus, Communities face the impossibility of monitoring the growing number of such youths that roam freely until the fateful day they go amok. This so-called solution has never worked. It tends to turn communities, especially schools, into prisons full of security measures and lockdowns to protect themselves against potential shooters. The second solution to the shooter problem has been rejected despite its obvious benefits. It calls for finding a single person for each troubled youth that can provide the goods and services now distributed over governmental agencies. This person would need to be a monitor, educator, counselor, judge, provider, protector, and role model, all in one. Finding someone to carry out such a complete task is not as difficult as it might seem. The missing person to deal with each troubled youth is the absent father. It must not be just any father. 
but a true Christian father who assumes the role of authority in the family and directs all its members to fulfillment and sanctity. In every single shooter case, the father is missing. The mother cannot assume this role, however heroic she might be. Young men need strong fathers, or at least father figures, who will shoulder all these strength-infusing roles to keep them from becoming the weak and cowardly figures that kill innocent and defenseless people. This father is missing. The father must constantly monitor his son's activities to keep them away from destructive influences, pornography, and drugs. He must be the teacher of what is right and wrong, and not be afraid to affirm it. He must say no when children threaten to harm themselves and others. He represents strength at the service of good when he prevents disaster. He must be selfless and say yes when it comes time to exercise his functions and become a role model of manliness and sacrifice. The son is made to admire and imitate this father in whom he sees his cause. This father is the symbol of constancy as he does not get divorced, but bears every hardship and treasures every joy to provide a haven of stability and formation so that his son might become a gentleman. He is the provider that teaches the son the meaning of responsibility and duty. Through him, the son learns to forget about self to think only of others. By his example and counsel, the father directs the boy to channel his energies and emotions into manly pursuits and virtuous action. He teaches honor, excellence, and courtesy to tame the wild passions of adolescence. The father is also the family's protector and teaches his son to defend himself and others, those whose responsibility is to exercise authority for the good of society and all in society who are weak and vulnerable. This father even encourages the safe handling of arms. The father exercises that God-given authority to lead his own family to God. This almost priestly role confers upon the father a sacral dignity that inspires wonder, respect, obedience, and reverence. By his good example, the father teaches his son the worship of the ultimate authority, the one true God, and fills him with the desire for virtue and heaven. This father is missing. The only way to stop the shootings is to bring back the father. It does not involve government programs, monitors, and benefits. The selfless father performs his duties at no cost to the state. Indeed, this devoted father, together with a loving mother, provides society with a balanced young man who will defend society from attacks. Bringing back the father means recreating the culture that allows this Christian father to flourish. 
Modern and postmodern society rejected this solution because it requires effort, assigns responsibility, and promotes virtue. This secular anti-Christian age hates the idea of the Father because it restricts absolute license as distinguished from ordered liberty, affirms the goodness of inequality in creation, and reflects God's supreme authority. Thus, in their denial of this real situation, people will continue to turn to an ever-bigger and liberty-crushing government, mountains of money, and worthless programs. Meanwhile, the shootings will continue to increase. The finger-pointing debate will go round and round without resolution. The world must return to order and God, bring back the Father, and the Son will be transformed. A lot of our society's decay is a byproduct of the sexual revolution. One important aspect of that revolution has the attitude that all relationships are disposable. Perhaps the most destructive facet of that attitude is the rise of the so-called easy divorce. In some states, it is easier to obtain a divorce than it is to sell a car. Someone selling an automobile has to advertise to find a buyer. A divorce can be obtained with a few signatures. Mr. Norman Fulkerson explores this process in his essay, How We Got the $99 Divorce. For a long time, divorce has become routine. Over the years, breaking marital vows, an oath before God if the persons are Christian, has become so simple and cheap that people say, you can get a divorce for the price of a Big Mac. This came to mind as I passed this homemade sign on the side of the road that read, Divorce, $99, plus a phone number to conveniently call. Curiosity got the best of me, and I dialed the number to see if it was for real. The man who answered said, Divorces start at that price, but they can go as high as $389, unquote. That's not exactly the price of a hamburger, but nevertheless, it is affordable for everyone. It wasn't only the price that I found so offensive. The shamelessness of the shoddy yard sale-like sign, haphazardly scribbled and posted on a sidewalk, made it seem that the matter was not important. He and his clients are obviously ignorant of the consequences of divorce on children. They would do well to read Judith Wallerstein's New York Times bestseller, The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce. Her book is based on many interviews with adults she had counseled as children after their parents split up. Her studies found that children of divorce seemed to suffer few ill effects when their parents part ways. However, appearances are deceiving. Bad things occur as the child matures, hence the book's title. The legacy of divorce is felt more acutely in adulthood. The most interesting part of her study deals with how children see the mother-father relationship. When a man and a woman are joined in holy matrimony, they become two in one flesh, as it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. This may appear as mere poetry to some, 
but it is how children see their parents. Mrs. Wallerstein explained how children, quote, identify not only with their mother and father as separate individuals, but with the relationship between them, unquote. She refers to it as a template they carry, quote, into adulthood and use it to speak the image of their new family, unquote. The foundational character of a married couple is so important for its offspring that it absolutely, positively cannot fail. When it does, the child is left with uncertainty about everything in life that increases with time. No matter how good things might be at a given point, Mrs. Wallerstein points out that children of divorce are always, quote, waiting for the other shoe to drop, unquote. This is what Karen, whom she interviewed, said about her life. Quote, part of me is always waiting for disaster. I keep reminding myself that I am doing this to myself. But the truth is that I live in dread that something bad will happen to me, unquote. Karen is one example of the children of divorce who actually become stronger people, but sadly, because they are forced to grow up quickly. Those who experience the marital breakup suffer tremendously because of this shattered template. Mrs. Wallerstein argues how it has a detrimental effect on all the future relationships in the child's life, including friendships at school, business partners, and most importantly, a future spouse. Children of divorce are statistically more likely to suffer from depression, anxiety, alcohol or substance addiction, spousal abuse, and suicide. Worst of all is the domino effect of divorce. A disproportionately higher percentage of children of divorce are later divorced themselves, compared with those from intact families. How did we reach the point of slapdash signs offering a $99 divorce? Mrs. Wallerstein explained that 50 years ago, couples seeking a divorce had to present a substantial reason for divorce, such as spousal abuse, infidelity, and so on. It also resulted in higher legal fees. In 1969, then-Governor Ronald Reagan signed California's Divorce Reform Act, which changed everything. This is how Mrs. Wallerstein described what happened next. It was a time of hope and faith that greater choice would set men and women free and benefit their children. Within a few years, no-fault divorce laws spread like wildfire to all 50 states. People all across the country were in favor of the change. Unquote. With this huge step, a couple could divorce for any reason, or no reason at all. Did anyone stop to think about how this change would affect not only the children, but society as a whole? The tragic results are evident. You still can't get a divorce for the price of a Big Mac, 
But it is now so easy that you have to wonder how long it will be before an unhappy couple will no longer need the services of a lawyer, even for a measly $99. The disintegration of the family becomes complete when parents discard their children. The foster care system contains millions of parentless children. That system is badly broken. Mr. Edwin Benson discusses that flawed bureaucracy in his essay, Expanding foster care to include social justice issues is child abuse. Quote, They take us away from our parents for things that they're not doing. But then you're all not doing the things you're supposed to do. Who's going to take us from you? Unquote. These words came from one of the over 437,000 children in the foster care system in the United States. In this case, a 10th grade student in Michigan. NBC quoted him in a recent story. While the cases are anecdotal, the story does reveal major problems inside the system. The NBC article primarily consists of the experiences of four young people who spent most of their lives in a bureaucracy that was too busy to look out for their interests. In each case, the state-run schools to which the system sent these children and adolescents not only failed to educate them, but didn't even give them credits that they could transfer when they wanted to continue their education. Indeed, the state often tells parents how to raise their children while not adequately caring for many of those already in its custody. The Cornell Law School states that the term foster child refers to, quote, a minor child who has been taken into state custody and placed with a state-licensed adult who cares for the child in place of their parent or guardian, unquote. The preference is that the state-licensed adult be the head of an otherwise conventional home, who can raise the child temporarily until a permanent adoptive family is found. Such a situation may work for very young children. However, adoption is highly unlikely in the cases of those that the state assumes care for as adolescents. These unfortunate ones go to group homes, or even larger institutions. The problem of raising children whose parents cannot do so, whether the reason is death, disability, or simple neglect of parental duty, is as old as human society. In Christian countries until the beginning of the Industrial Age, godparents raised such children. Usually, the godparents were family members or friends of the child's natural parents. Their ability to raise the child if necessary was one of the elements that determined their selection for this important role. If the godparents could not fulfill this duty, another family member would assume the task. In cases where children had no family member capable of raising them, they would be placed in a church-run orphanage. A natural progression occurred in which the first recourse was to those selected by the child's parents, then to other family members. Finally, in only the direst straits, there was recourse to an institution. 
That situation unraveled as the state began to usurp the appropriate functions of the church. In Europe, the first step came when King Henry VIII suppressed Catholic monasteries, some of which operated orphanages, as part of his revolution against the church. While not as dramatic, comparable situations happened in most countries that adopted Protestantism. Roughly 250 years after Henry's death, the French Revolution impacted orphanages in much the same way, as did the overthrow of the Italian Papal States in 1870. These processes plunged orphans into desperation. Many died. Others became virtual slaves. And far too many became street urchins, having to support themselves in the new industrial urban centers. Finally, starting about 1840, the church and other charitable organizations reopened orphanages in many cities. However, the need always outstripped the resources. Ultimately, the state stepped in to deal with the issue. The results have not been good. The most secular state often serves the orphans as a bureaucracy, not a parent. Some family situations are so bad that the state has to intervene to protect the physical well-being of the children. Often, parents who use so-called recreational drugs neglect their children. Some parents take out their frustrations by physically and emotionally abusing their children. During his teaching career, this author remembers being approached by a student who asked, Do I have to testify in court against my parents? The parents were being tried and were eventually convicted of starving another of their children to death. This confused culture has too many such stories. The state's power to intervene in cases of abuse is now being expanded to include cases to advance so-called social justice. It's tempted to embrace a homosexual or trans lifestyle, despite their parents' disapproval, can receive relief from the state. Parents resisting gender-affirming surgeries can lose their children permanently. In 2020, National Review quoted an article in the Journal of Medical Ethics that describes these policies. Quote, Ultimately, allowing transgender minors to consent to gender-affirming treatment, that is, overriding parental consent, should be sought only when all other avenues to try to bring caretakers around have failed, or if approaching them poses a clear and present risk to the minor's well-being, unquote. In other words, the state can force parents, the so-called caretakers, to comply. These adolescents, taken by the state due to this form of so-called parental neglect, end up in the foster care system. That is the same system that cannot even ensure that all children already under their care can get a basic education. However, 
Leftist revolutionaries often do not care if their pseudo-solutions actually work. They deceive themselves and the public by claiming their motivations will make the child's life better. However, their overriding goal is to destroy the remnants of Christian morality, especially sexual morality, in society. That twisted vision of society sees this morality as the main evil. Tragically, the children become pawns in their never-ending quest to remove all limits and any semblance of order. This concludes, The American family must be restored before its society can be revived. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please remember that we publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. There are two ways to make sure that you don't miss future episodes. The first way is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. We ask subscribers to give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.